there, dear people. I'm Kim Stewart, and you are listening to For Real. And I'm so excited to introduce you to this fascinating guest today. Dr. Emily Smith is a rock star epidemiologist, the first I've ever met. Maybe they're all rock stars. A UN presenter, an author, not just of scientific articles I cannot understand, but also of a new book that I can understand called The Science of the Good Samaritan. Dr. Emily has done a deep dive into what that means to be a Good Samaritan in the year 2023, both within our local communities and also as people of faith who know that God so loves the world. I think you will love hearing from her. Here's my conversation with Dr. Emily Smith. Dr. Emily Smith, thank you for joining me on For Real. It's so great to have you here. Thank you. I'm, I'm excited about this. You know, your bio about love and chocolate and ignoring laundry. We're just <laughs> going to be friends. This We're soul sisters. We've already yeah. been chatting for 10 minutes, you guys. <laughs> and uh, I think this is going to be a lovely conversation. So um, Dr. Emily, Emily, Dr. Yes. Emily, Emily, I want to call you Dr. Smith because I feel like anyone who earns a doctorate should always, I should always say doctor, always. So I will probably call you that. And I okay. want you to know that I respect that so deeply. Well, I'm thankful. Thank you for that. But you can definitely just call me Emily. Okay. That is okay. <laughs> when Mark, my husband, my husband's an orthodontist. And when he finished school, he had a master's and a doctorate. Uh -huh. And so he, for 45 seconds, it didn't work, said to me, do you think now you're going to call me master doctor? Oh, sure. Yes. Like, didn't no. It? Yeah. No. Mm -hmm. I also I tried have a master's that. degree and he's never yeah. called me master. So no. I don't feel like that's appropriate, but he was hopeful no. for a second. Um, Emily, you are my very first epidemiologist guest. Oh, for sure. Lovely. Fact, I don't believe I've ever met one in real life. You are a oh. real life oh. unicorn. Well, this is going good or bad. Either way, I'm going <laughs> to elevate them all or, uh oh. They come down. No, I would love for you to just talk right off the top about what an epidemiologist does, what your life is, and also why you chose that field. Yes, great question. Well, you know, pre-pandemic epidemiology, people just thought we were skin doctors. Exactly. Like, bless the them. Epidermis you know? for sure. Yeah. Want me to look at their moles? No, I'm oh, no. like an epidemic. <laughs> so now they know a little bit more kind of, of who we are. I say kind of, because yeah. there's still a lot of confusion. So how I talk about it is doctors and nurses and dentists, you know, they treat one-on-one -on -one ailments. And what we do is we treat more communities and population and groups of people um, and so that's part of our job is to diagnose the problem within a group of people. And, you know, for me, it's uh, it, it's like the book, The Science of the Good Samaritan. And I, I'll explain why um, in a minute on that. But it's a science of equity. And so the if you want to be proper, if you ever go on Jeopardy, the definition of epidemiology is the distribution and determinants of disease. So what makes a disease spread and who is most at risk? Um, if you really want to get down to the, the nitty gritty, it is who is vulnerable to some sort of health condition or poverty. So that's how I explain it. You know, I was, um, I've 
been in the church my whole life. My parents were in church. And so I remember my first thought of what I wanted to be when I grew up. One was Sandy Patty. Come yes. On now. I, I read Love in It. Wait. Oh, how's it go? Yes. Love in It from the language. Heart. Yeah, yeah. You wrote about she, that and it was in my home and in my head, Sandy. Je Tim. Yeah, we all thought we could like <laughs> talk in six languages because she said she did that. <laughs> That's hilarious. So my sweet 10-year-old self wrote her a note. Just sure like, you Sandy, did. I just love you. I haven't heard. It's fine. And, but I also wanted to be a missionary. And that's that's because I just, we we had missionaries stay in our house all the time. And I was just captured by stories, but I think it was just wanting to help people. Um, and so I thought the only way to do that was to be an MD. Uh, so I was pre-med, you know, took the MCAT, got into medical school and got married straight out of college to my pastor husband. I've been married 20 years now. So he, his first job was all the way across the country. And I had a gap year between when I could apply to medical school again and decided, well, I'm, well, I'm just nerdy. So why not go back to school and just get a degree <laughs> real quick? So like, yeah, sure. Throw it on your resume for med school. And it was public health because it just seemed to fit. And I remember the first epidemiology course that I took, I hadn't heard of it much at all. And I definitely did not know what it was, but he's talking about you know, this is a way for us to essentially love your neighbor, to quantify who is at risk of any type of disease and what affects that risk so that you can go do something about it. And to me, I, I just remember sitting in that chair and thinking, this is the science of the Good Samaritan. It's quantifying a need. And then we have a choice if we intervene or if we just walk by. Um, and of course, it's, you know, it's an equity, it's a poverty, it's a vulnerability type issue. So that's why I got in it. Never went to med school, got a PhD instead and been doing that for quite a while now. And now you present to the UN. Who uh, it would, yes, that's awesome. <laughs> we're going to get to that. Yes. Um, and I can't wait to talk a little bit more about Science of the Good Samaritan, your new book that's coming out. But first, one of the parts of your book that made me react at a visceral level, because I also am a woman, was yeah. this little section at the beginning where you're talking about kind of the early stages of your own interest in science. I, My eldest daughter is a total STEM girl. She's yeah. a junior in college. I'm, we're having conversations right now about, you know, what will life look like? What does she want to do after the next couple of years? And mm. she's shadowing a bunch of people and she's always loved science. Yeah. Um, and I did call her to read this little section out loud. You're talking about how you schlepped these boards to your science fair. This is in high school, correct? <laughs> it's in the high school? school. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I sure. mean, and there's a photo. Oh. Readers will want to go straight <laughs> to the photo on page legend. 25. It yes. is fantastic. <laughs> and you talk about how you were very prepared and you had teachers who yeah. really supported you when you were at this um, particular fair that you wanted to win. And I just need to read, I don't often read words of authors to authors, but this one we have to do out loud. Okay. You are waiting um, and waiting and waiting. And finally, a female judge comes by. You don't know why. No one is coming to evaluate your work. You have all your all your ducks in a row, all of your um, results of all your experiments. And this female judge, of which there were a few in the group, came up and told me the judges weren't coming to my board because they believed there was no way I could have done this level of work. 
They also said I looked more like a model than a scientist, probably because I was a girl, five foot ten, and had blonde hair. I had been disqualified in the judges' minds by my gender and possibly by my height and hair, too. And then I'd love to read this last fantastic paragraph in this section. <laughs> My blood pressure was high by the time I got to this paragraph, but this is what you write. By the way, I did end up doing some modeling later in life, modeling statistical multivariate <laughs> regression models and geospatial analyses to help children in low-income countries. And <laughs> nerdy mic drop right there. <laughs> that is not the best mic drop ever. I read it to Anna last night on the boat and she was hooting and hollering. And I would just love for you to speak in to that moment because yeah. Yeah. a lesser person would have probably gotten either angry or just so discouraged. Like, am I going to have to fight this dumb fight forever? So I'd love for you to talk about what compelled you to keep going, but also is that what my daughter will face? Yeah, I well, we'll come back to that because I've got a little one too. Well, I mean, she's not little, she'll be 15, but whatever. I'm in denial. Yeah, Who totally. loves STEM as well? But yeah, that story, you know, I had spent um three years on that science fair project and connected connected with a, a college, you know, because I just grew up in a tiny, tiny, lovely town, eastern New Mexico, and to go to Texas to try to find somebody who I could do a science fair project with, because um, I was enamored with DNA. I mean, how nerdy can you get on this one? But I was. And so I, I just was so confident in the project. My dad built that board that you were talking about. Readers, please go look at that <laughs> for that your picture. dad. So he can get the props he deserves after all. Yeah. It's mammoth. It's like, it's its own little city. And it's plywood. It's yeah. not like it's plastic. Bless him. But I had a lot of data. And so I was like, dad, I need you to build a board within a board. And he did. Y'all, it's fantastic. So I I was just all in and I loved it. I was so proud. I mean, I just coming from the uh, the city that or the town that where we were, it was a big deal to have you know, to go to Texas Tech and do this big project. Um, so I just couldn't understand. It was probably one of my first realistic or realisms into maybe what the world was um, for and against us and some type of it just not being fair. So it caught me so off guard. And, you know, you mentioned people would either be angry or devastated. I was devastated. And it took my science teacher who she's in the the book, um, in the back of the book, Mrs. Dodd, is she, she approached me a little bit later and said, Hey, we found another competition that you could enter and basically just, I mean, I, there's no way I could get into that other one because I just lost to the boys <laughs> with not as good boards at least. And so I did, I, I just trusted her and my mom drove me all over the state with that board and worked my way up again. So I, I, you know, is it getting better? I don't know. You know, one of the most uh, viral posts that I did during the pandemic was when people were refusing to call Jill Biden, Dr. Jill Biden, mm. um, just because she's not, she's a PhD and not an MD, which I am too. And I have mm -hmm. heard that as well. So I, I just wrote a little thing and it definitely resonated with people. I don't know if it's getting better. Mm. Maybe we're getting better at calling it out. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's still a lot of 
misogyny mm. <laughs> in science. That's so discouraging. I yeah. I wondered if your experience if that had been an isolated experience or I mean I I'm that doesn't shock me. I also am alive in this time and I've seen sure. a little of that even in my work but um I loved your response and I loved it that yeah. you said, no, I really did end up modeling just maybe not what they were thinking. I did. And I do want to say, I think it's getting better at not the misogyny part, but I think we as women are getting better at just calling it what it is. Mm -hmm. I'm so much more quick at recognizing it and just saying, well, I don't want to be here anymore. I'm going to go to real friends or value. And yeah, I think that is getting better. Yeah. A faster yeah. uptake for that. I would love for you to talk a little bit about your book and I want to start in the middle. Oh, um, lovely. I think the reason for that is because it seems to me there's a season that you have just, you're just pulling out of Yeah. Um, that made everything stop. And my guess is that in part, that season was the impetus for writing this book. I'm not sure if you would have written the book at this time, but you have to speak to that. But it seems like that was a very pivotal time in your life and your career coming out of, of um, just a horrible season. So can you talk about that um, and then let us know why your body had such a violent reaction to what you were living? Yes. So, you know, the book is in three different sections and the middle section that you're talking about is the cost part. You know, the first part is centering and the last is courage, the three C's, because I'm a good Baptist. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Have, well yeah. done. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but to really center correctly, and this is what I was not prepared for uh, during the pandemic of, you know, starting to be a little bit more bold in talking about the inequities. It, actually, I don't even think I recognized it at boldness at the time. I was just doing what I thought naturally and was blindsided by the responses that I kept getting. And so I just wanted to let people know there's a cost for that. There's also some incredible outcomes and courage, which is the mm -hmm. last. Mm -hmm. But I didn't want to skip over the cost because I, had I been prepared, I think my body might not have reacted like it did. So, you know, what had happened is prior to the pandemic, I was, I mean, I still am very much normal, but I was certainly not known by more than just my circle <laughs> um, instead of millions of people now. And when it started resonating with people, um, it really got the uptake when for some reason, masking and vaccines and all that, loving your neighbor became a hot topic political issue, like mm. a debatable one. Instead right. of one that I thought would just be, gosh, guys, this is just being a good human. Right. And we should say, when you say when it started, you stuck your head out of the trench and on Facebook created an account, the yeah. Friendly Neighborhood Epidemiologist, right? Yeah. As a way right. to really resource your mother, you say, yes. to get her <laughs> get information. And my it caught on. It caught on. Yeah. yeah. And a friendly neighbor epidemiology, epidemiologist is what it was called. There's another friendly neighborhood one. Oh, um, sorry. Who's, friendly she's neighbor. great too. Yeah. That's okay. okay. <laughs> um, yeah. But I did it because I was getting real time questions from my mom and real life neighbors on what does flatten the curve mean? And do I need to buy 562 rolls of paper, toilet paper? And, you know, and so I just did it for them and it did catch on as being helpful um, you know, when it hit 500, I was thinking, what in the world is happening? And then 50,000 came and then, you know, now it's 
double that. <laughs> so it it did catch on because I think, I mean, it was a very scary period where none of us quite knew, but that was my training. Like this was my lane to step in and to help people in an accessible way. And then being a person of a Christian faith and being a pastor's wife, um, I wanted to speak into it as how we can love our neighbors, mm-hmm. especially like COVID, where you have to love your neighbors. You have to protect people, which is why I named it Friendly Neighbor because of the story of the Good Samaritan. Friendly just because I just am very friendly. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I said by you, you want to Never plane. apologize. I love it. <laughs> Thank you. So with the exposure came some really harmful things. I mean, when you hear on the news about threats being sent to scientists and stuff, that that was our house. I mean, we had legitimate threats at our house, had to work with authorities multiple times. Um, but then when it started coming from people you know or that you worship with um, in your neighborhood, it just becomes incredibly unsafe. You know, we hit, I mean, our kids just couldn't go walk anymore. They, we didn't really tell them why, but I'm sure that they heard things or, you know, saw more cameras going up. I I don't know. We're still working through that with them. But so you've got the onslaught of the real, someone knows where you live to daily, somebody sending you Holocaust imagery or guns. And I mean, very scary stuff that you have to work with really high authorities for. So to get that daily, and I thought it would quit at some point, which is why I just kept going and it didn't quit. And so you have that. And then, you know, we left a church. We, there were lifelong friends who I just lost, um, dear, dear people. It just felt like 40 years was unraveling. You know, faith traditions was unraveling. It was a good, you know, nine, 10 months of just this. Um, and I never struggled with health before ever. I never even taken a multivitamin. Sorry, mom, but I, <laughs> I just feel very fortunate for that. Um, until it was after Easter, it was the week after Easter. And I was thinking, gosh, I've got a weird headache. Didn't know what it was. Thought maybe it's anxiety. Let's go do yoga. And that was not, I mean, downward dog It's not what you need to do when you have a migraine coming on. I just didn't know what it was. And that just put me. I mean, basically in bed for like a year of, wow. it was, it was, it felt like the thread unraveled mm-hmm. and then it, when it unraveled and I thought there'd be a floor to fall on that gave out too. So it was, oh. I just want people to know that cost and it might not be as dramatic as mine. I hope it's not, but I think we've all lived through something that has made a cost, you know, at the same time where I was experiencing all of that, I saw my Facebook page kind of split into three different camps. One was the science camp, no faith at all. And they're still with me. And I just love them different faiths or no. And then of the Christian evangelical space, um, which is the largest group, there was a group that said, what's next? You know, they just, they had never seen racism like they had they never heard about poverty inequities or things that I was talking about from a data perspective. And they just were wholeheartedly seeing it and then saying, what do we do? And then there was the other group who just kind of pivoted and walked by. Um, 
And so I, the book, I, I want the people who are asking what's next. That's what the book is about. It's not about the pandemic. It's the what's next part, knowing that there could be a cost and I want them to be, be able to count it. Yeah. I'm just going to tell you, Dr. Emily, that this has sitting with your book and even this conversation is longer than I like to think about the pandemic. I didn't, oh, I don't sure. talk about it often. In fact, yeah. I, for a long time would coach authors to just not, not write about it because yeah. everyone was kind of purging themselves of that experience, which has its place, but it's still such a tender bruise that, um, I don't like to think about it. It was really hard for our family. And I often think I'm so glad that today is today. And I'm typically not a person who avoids the past, but that one, like I'm, I, as you say about your kids, we're still working through um, some of the things that happen. And so I would say you have courage just to talk about this, but also you just mentioned a bazillion really high voltage words. I mean, we are not talking anymore about masking and vaccines and, and systemic racism. I mean, we should be talking about that, but I feel like it's after you go through just yeah. a really traumatic time, it's hard to even look it in the face. And I think for myself personally, I felt like I was staring in the face for the better part of two years, three years that yeah. I just don't want to anymore. And so, yeah. um, I would love for you to talk a little bit about how as people of faith in particular, we can approach this with some compassion and some humanity. And instead of shutting this down, because that's what I see in the little pocket where I live, yeah. that if we even open the door to this conversation, most people are out. Mm -hmm. on, on every side, yeah. like, I just can't do that now. Or there's some immediate vitriol. I mean, when you, you were very diplomatic right there, Miss Emily talking about <laughs> the ways that people were unkind to you. I mean, you yeah. had death threats. People yeah. were attacking your family. Um, you mentioned some of the imagery that people sent. Um, you're a scientist. We have another, we have another friend who works in this sphere and his, his wife is not a scientist. And she has said to me multiple times, I married the most wonderful nerd yeah. who lives <laughs> in a lab. And somehow he was in the crossfires of protests and anger and death threats and this horrible thing. And he, well, like you kept saying, well, here are numbers. Mm -hmm. So somehow we're in this position as a society. And I think as people of faith where we're cringing to even go here. Sure. Yeah. Tell me why we have to go here. Talk to our uh -oh. listeners who are like, no, I don't want to. I also love that you give voice to that feeling because I, I feel that probably more than anybody, which is why that part of the book is only two chapters and the other sections are like eight <laughs> because I even don't want to talk about it. I, there's just in a, in a real way, we have moved past the scariest part, the most acute part of the pandemic. Um, there is a, I don't want to talk a lot about it. There's a lot that I don't share in the book because I yeah. just don't want to go there. I could hear your restraint. Like there were several times when you were like, and I'm not going to publish that. <laughs> like no. just wanting to move. Yeah. I, I can only imagine because it's not just professional to you. It's also personal. 
is sure. And there's ramifications that could even be against my, my children. And I, I just can't do it, but I also just don't have the, I don't have the strength to be able to do it. What I, I'm glad you asked the question though, because what I'm trying to tell everybody is this is not a pandemic book. You will hear about it a little, um, but kind of, but more on a personal thing. This is, I mean, there are great books out there where for 200 pages, they talk about all of that data, you know, the pandemic. And I, if I'm being honest, I haven't read any of them and I am a voracious reader. I can't do it. It's just too much. So this book is not one of those. Um, at the same time, what I wanted to do is there were buzzwords that were unearthed during the pandemic that were not COVID related, like systemic racism, structural violence, universal health coverage, climate change. I mean, these are these are words that I hear in a science way, um, but it got embedded because that's COVID just unearthed all of it. And what I wanted to do is to talk about those words for people in a way that could be understood in very narrative form. You know, one of them is like structural violence. I tell the really sweet story of me um, having my children. And it, it's just, it's funny. It's sweet. It's about my husband singing and falling asleep. And I'm like, you better get back up and <laughs> sing how great thou art because I'm, <laughs> I'm in labor. <laughs> um, but I, I had baby number two with severe preeclampsia. And was had to go to the hospital multiple times. It was very scary with severe high blood pressure. Uh, but I was okay. You know, I had the medicine. I had the funds. I lived very close to it. But I've got teams that work in Burundi in Africa. Um, and if my equivalent of a mom who she had a child already, like I did, had severe preeclampsia, she would have to walk really far away, pay out of pocket, postpartum, or bleeding out. Mm -hmm. And there's a good probability that she and the child would die mm -hmm. at no fault of her own. It's because of the structures around her versus the structures around me, that structural violence, that's something systemic. So the book is, is taking those words that you, you just are scared to talk about in the, in like rightly so, because they are scary. They're loaded and tried to give you some vocabulary around it because what I think is it helps us center correctly. You know, anybody can be a good Samaritan, but what made the story of the good Samaritan, what made him stop and lean down and give some care to that man? And not only that, pick him up, take him to a lodge or a hospital or somewhere to get care uh, for multiple days and paid for all of it. There's something intrinsic in a person to make you do that instead of walk by. And that's the first part of the book is how do we center correctly? So it's about giving money you know, to a food bank or sponsoring a child, all those good things. But it's the both and or the end also that comes next. So centering is almost like if you were in the kitchen table at the kitchen table with me, we're eating lasagna because God bless lasagna. That's right. Mm -hmm. And we're talking ab about these things, that, you know, how to do it conversationally to center correctly. Hey, everybody. Did you know that you really should be on my email list? This email list is not a bummer list. 
I know you understand what I'm saying here. Bummer lists crowd your inbox. They say the same thing every dang time and they give you very little in way of inspiration or joy. Well, let me just assure you, I have no interest in bummers and that I do not email unless I have a good reason for Pete's sake. I send you links to fun things, announcements about stuff you actually care about, even recipes that have helped the Stewart family live to see another day and which taste delicious. Here's another perk. If you join the list, you get a free book. Just text Kim to 44144. That's K-I-M to the number 44144. And I'll send you a Kimberly Stewart novel straight to your not-a-bummer inbox. Easy, fast, and fun! If only all of life were like this. And now, my friends, back to the conversation. I think you explain really big ideas in a really... um, accessible way. I could hold the ideas that you were putting forth and also so much of it dovetails with your own narrative, which is a, which is a rock star trick for writers because it helps us open the door to more people than to folks who are already familiar with, with the topic at hand. You mentioned, and also, um, and you make a case that we are more responsible good Samaritans when we look at the end also. And I feel like we are not in a spot culturally right now where we do that. We are yeah. in a black and white moment. Yes. I live in Iowa. And so we are headed into another political season. And by headed into, I mean, I've been getting political calls for the last 10 months. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a long process for us. Yeah. And so we see that played out on the daily your book is not a political book, but I'm saying that that conversation seeps in. And so I want you to talk to us as people who, a lot of the folks who listen are followers of Jesus. And I need you to kind of unravel that for us. Why is and also important? And why, second part, why is our need for um, accurate global history and global context so important right now? Gosh, excellent. I love those questions, all of it. <laughs> and how long do we have? <laughs> maybe <laughs> maybe I'll tackle the the last one because we were just talking about those buzzwords. And I love history. So you're going to hear a lot about that. Hopefully not in a boring way. Oh, no, book. I love history too. I'm a total nerd with that. Mm-hmm. Yes. But I, I work in a beautiful country called Somaliland. It's in the Horn of Africa. It's a very, it's fourth poorest country in the world. Um, for some reasons of no fault of its own. There's the no fault of its own again from, you know, the personal experience I just talked about or the the country. But if you go back uh, to 1885, there in Belgium, a group of 14 countries, all high-income countries, all white men. Um, I'm married to a white man, so nothing about that, but I'm just giving you the scriptures. So they met around this horseshoe table, and on the back of the wall was this huge map of the continent of Africa. At the end of that meeting, Africa had been sectioned off to those 14 countries as to go in and colonize them. Now, no one from Africa was at the table, although the Sultan of Zanzibar asked to come and was denied. If you actually look at how Africa was just naturally, you know, the tribes and the 
gorgeous countries and how it was. Um, what the colonized, you know, what those 14 countries did was they broke up 10% of the ethnic groups. And not only that, they broke up the countries. And so what it looks like for Somaliland, it is a part of Somalia, but it was colonized by the British or Italy. Now, fast forward, you know, a hundred some odd years, and you have Somalia, which was one way, and Somaliland, which is relatively safe, a democratic society. It, they look very different, and it's because the colonizers were very different as well. Mm -hmm. um, and the aid, I mean, there's a lot of, of, a lot of uh, reasons why that's mm -hmm. the case. Yeah. But I want people to understand that countries that are are poor, and I'm using air quotes as poor, or they lack, you know, health services or whatever you want to call it. It's not a fault of their own. You can trace it back to the colonizer part, to how in Belgium, if you look at the King Leopold of Belgium with the Congo, there's a huge story there of oppression and power and colonization in the name of God. You know, when they hit or when they were around that horseshoe table, their full statement that they released, which you can still find now, is in the name of God Almighty. And it just broke me when I realized that because I think God Almighty is not power and privilege and colonizing. So I want people to 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 hear that history because we are not taught that history. And at least for me, when I hear those stories, I've got more empathy and more understanding and compassion for moms just like me right. in Somaliland and just trying to raise their children. Right. So that brings me to the end also because... I, you know, everybody can give food and we donate at Thanksgiving and you sponsor a child. And this is all, yes, like amen to all of that. The and also is recognizing what do I spend the rest of my money on outside of those donations? And should that change? Um, if I, you see a lot of uh, shaming that seems to happen, blame shifting of whose fault is racism or not. That's just one, uh, one example. The and also is to give money and also change how we talk about our neighbors. You know, in, here in the States, the, another example I tell in the book is about redlining. Um, I live here in Durham, North Carolina, and there are some neighborhoods that were redlined way back uh, into neighborhoods that were not given mortgages because it was predominantly black. If you fast forward now, those houses compared to houses in predominantly white neighborhoods are tens of thousands of dollars cheaper. We have that same history in our city and I didn't know about it until my kids told me. So yeah. they are talking about it. They are talking yeah. about it, which gives me hope. They're some of my best teachers, but I had no idea. Yeah. Um, and that legacy continues. So I think yes. what you would say, and you can correct me, but I think knowing both, I think this is an eyes wide open conversation, right? And you make a point that a lot of what we need to do right now is to listen um, and to take the time to listen instead of saying, well, also, which is, that's a natural reaction, but that's not always the best reaction. I need to allow for that silence and allow for someone to speak into what I do not know. Yeah. Because when we do, it recenters our heart correctly, and then we unconsciously stop by whoever is on the side of the you know the road in whatever way that is. So I, I just think it makes us more into like Jesus. But you are right; it is a 
it's checking ourselves. It's a lot of relearning and not, not taking things so personal. <laughs> right. Oh, well, yeah. are you going to write a book about that? Because we are definitely <laughs> in a personal moment. Yeah. And I, that was one of my favorite chapters to write is I talk about my grandparents and mm-hmm. I just loved all of them. That was one of my, that I love that chapter. Um, but they, they built a legacy that largely I am living on. And also I am white. They were too. They could own land. They could get mortgages for their farms in times of trouble. So it's recognizing that and then now doing something about it, whatever that looks like. I want to circle back to that because I'd love to give folks some an idea of next steps. Um, but before we do that, I would love for you to talk about, there's a spot in the book where you um, mentioned hearing, this is way back when you were in Mercy Ship, and you heard folks around you singing in their languages and praying the Lord's Prayer in their own languages. And you return to that theme over and over in the book. Um, My guess is that even at the tender age of whatever you were, 19, that made an impression. And so can you talk about what you took from that moment and how that still informs your work? Yeah, I, that's a great memory. You know, I was on the Mercy Ship. You're right. I was 19. Maybe I was 20, but just a babe. First trip out of the U.S. You know, I. Oh, my gosh. You went big. I, I know. And I <laughs> didn't stop in parents. Cancun. You're going straight to Mercy <laughs> Ship. That's awesome. On a boat. I didn't tell my parents I was applying until I got accepted. And I'm sorry, Bob. That's a We're good going. move. Yes. Also, my you. children don't do that. But go no. ahead. I will. Yeah, I've told them that story, so they won't do that. That's I a will. preventative okay. story. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But one of the last days, um, I I was working in the kitchen because that's all I was trained to do at the time, which I think is actually really holy work. But we had these uh, kind of worship uh, times on the evenings every once in a while. And one of them, the worship leader said, will you just uh, say the Lord's Prayer in your own language? And then there was a song, too. And it I had my eyes closed even before that. But then when people, it's like the room just exploded with color. So I opened my eyes up. And of course, in that part of the ship, they had you know, flags of just hundreds of countries around it. Um, or not hundreds, because there's not that many, but you know what I mean? And I saw those colors and everybody just praying. And it it was such a reflection of what I think heaven's going to be. I don't think it's going to be we're all speaking in English or required to do so. And it's going to be culture and color and smells. So I just love that. And when you fast forward to the first time I went to the UN, um, I went around on the third floor. If you go, there is a huge, larger than life picture recreation of Norman Rockwell's The Golden Rule. Um, and I had bought that book for my children when Bella was born. This is 14 years ago because it was the Lord's Prayer in all different languages. So we've had that. We would read it. And then at the UN, I was just smacked with going around the corner and it's right there in mosaic tile. So it kind of glimmers. And it reminded me again of that to me is what heaven looks like. And so when I'm thinking about those buzzwords that we don't want to talk about, if we hold them up to heaven, I think that they, or to the sky, I think they reflect heaven because there's no inequity up there. There's no poverty. Um, and as, as heaven, you know, it's on earth as it is in heaven is a prayer of, should be a prayer of all of ours. So that picture 
color and sound. You know, I was in New York two weeks ago and there's a time where I just sat right outside of the UN and just listened. And it was just like that. It Mm -hmm. was really, it was very emotional, Mm -hmm. you know, to hear it again. And um, the nation's convening was very cool. It's awesome. Um, Yeah, that is a heartbeat in my life and in our family. And I think once when you get a glimpse of that, it shifts every, the prism shifts. I feel like this is a continual act of surrender because my natural instinct, I think our natural instinct as humans is to try to understand and to try to put a bow on something and to try to say, well, gosh, that sounds really hard. Right. I mean, some of the Mm -hmm. things you talk about are just gigantic problems. And so if our knee jerk is, well, that's too big for me. I cannot do that. What do you say? Cross that divide for us, Dr. Emily Smith, and help (laughs) us not feel overwhelmed and instead see that there is so much hope and so many good things happening and that we can be a part of that. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I love the prism. I wish I would have written that in the oh. book. <laughs> Maybe that's book number two. That's lovely. What a oh, cool You picture. can have it. Steal it. <laughs> Works out. <laughs> that's very cool. Well, that is the last part of the book. We've centered correctly. Hopefully there's likely a cost, but I promise it's worth it. And then the last one is then what's next? And it, which is courage, you know, courage to do what? Um, And a lot of that is a chapter on broadening our definition of health, that it's, it's what we'd want for our kids. We want them to thrive, not just be healthy. So we, you know, have that for the rest of the world as a hope. I think to get not overwhelmed, one of my favorite chapters, I feel like I've said that a lot this you can have <laughs> all of your favorite chapters. Maybe yeah, it, just, it's hard work to write a book. So we like all hard. of the chapters. Yes. <laughs> okay. That's, that's good. <laughs> uh, it's one on Nehemiah in the courage part. And, you know, there's this part where he, um, he was just a cupbearer to the King end of chapter one. I, uh, in my Bible, story. I actually, yeah, I actually have written, you know, I'm a, um, a mom of one. And I dated, and then I'm a PhD student and I dated. So it's really cool. It's like the phase of life. You turn to the next chapter and he's going to go and repair the wall. Um, So he's doing a great job. He's rallied everybody. And then there's these two Sanballat and Tobias, San and the Yahoos. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They need like a kind of horn behind him or something. Sound effect. (laughs) Yeah. Sound effect. They, come and they try to get him with like, people are talking bad at you and he doesn't take the bait, yeah. you know, which usually we would, well, let me just figure that out. Yeah. Let me but correct they, them. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Cause you don't want to be misunderstood. Defend myself. That's right. Yeah. But he doesn't. And then they come with more of a sneak attack of, do you want to come and let's just have coffee. And I just need to tell you about some things. I mean, it is total subtle and his words he's it's like he's building the wall and he's saying it at the same time I just what I have in my mind but he said I'm doing a good work and I'm not coming down what like the mic drop again the best yes I mean my husband texted me that he'll Mm -hmm. text me that all the time it's such an anchor for me Mm -hmm. of of not getting distracted either by crazy voices don't I mean social media but also most of us, I have feeling most of your listeners are geared towards empathy and compassion anyways. So I hear about climate change and I'm thinking, okay, well, that's what I'm doing. And then you hear about 
racism. And then there's poverty. And then there's, I mean, there's no lack of There's no end. Yep. Yeah. So how do we choose our good work that we will not come down for? Yes, ma'am. At the same time, I've got somebody, you're building right beside me on your good work and you're not getting distracted either. So I think there's some wisdom in knowing who we are and who we're not. And that's okay. And not coming down for social media or coffee breaks with people who just want to get in your head. I love what you're doing. I think you have paid a ridiculous price, Um, but I'm grateful that you're doing that work and that even the yahoos who will not be (laughs) named, but who were quite vocal to you. um, I'm just so glad that you had the resolve to, to view that in the, through the lens of what's the work that God actually wired me to do. Yeah. Um, and that you didn't, didn't stop. So thank you. Yeah. Well, you're welcome. I mean, had I known that there could have been a stopping point, I probably would. Yeah. I just thought this has got to get better and it right. just never did. Right. Um, so I just want to make that clear because I'm not, I'm as normal as can be. I'm just a mama too with two dogs and trying to figure out what I'm going to do in three hours for dinner. Right. Um, so it's, I mean, I think it's just walking with him. It's also, this is the long view, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's for me, it's the author and the perfecter of the faith, like keeping my eyes on him because mm-hmm. there were years of where I was just dreaming about doing global health and I was just raising little bitty babies mm-hmm. and not doing anything in it. Yeah. And then it comes, you know, to fruition a little bit later. So I think there's some long view there to take that not only is God patient, but I just think he's good for whatever time we're in. That's so good. And won't won't leave you high and dry. It's no. not in his character to bring you halfway around the track and say, hey, okay, you ran the final 200 meters are yeah. all you, kid. He just <laughs> doesn't do that. We do that, no. but he does not. No, there's a tender. One of the very last chapters is the one about the garden and the table. And those are where they get a little bit more where I talk about God a little more, because I didn't want to do that throughout the whole book and disenfranchise or proselytize. That's just not my intent. But those were some tender ones of meeting him again in the garden. And and you're right. He doesn't, he does not leave you. Um, and he redeems. That's, you know, part of the end of the book is we have a new community. We have a new church. It's new still garden. incredibly painful, a new garden. Yeah. And, but there is some hope and some courage and it's who I am now versus three years ago. I don't know if I would trade getting here Mm. because I feel so much more me. Mm. That's so great. Some of your work is helping children in the margins get access to surgery Mm -hmm. and surgical care. That was a new idea for me that that, that that in particular is a marker, all sorts of things affect health, as you said, and it's not just access to an operation, yeah. um, but lots of things that play into that. I think that's a great example of what you're talking about for having a little bit more rounded and informed idea of what's actually happening in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's epidemiology, the science of the good Samaritan of quantifying the need and not walking by, but we have to quantify the need in what it really is. In truth, we were trying to figure out what Well, one for families, what impoverishes families, what gets families stuck in poverty 
where they cannot boomerang out of it. And so with epidemiology, it's like you throw in everything in the kitchen sink. Well, it could be how many kids they have to feed. It could be how remote they are. It could be their monthly income. Um, it could also be having a kid with a surgical need. But I wasn't expecting that because we had all these other factors. I thought it was going to be how much the family made on an average or how many kids were in the home. But when you throw it in that kitchen sink and then out pops the number one marker of poverty, it was having a kid with surgical needs because they were having to pay not only for the surgery, but food and transportation and lodging to get there. And that is why we went to the UN because we were saying, hey, when we're talking about universal health coverage and protecting people from poverty or keeping them out of it, you need to include surgical care for children mm. based on this data. So had we not got the story right, like quantified the risk right, right you intervene on something that's not going to matter. So right. I think the truth telling of the data is one of my favorite parts of the job. Mm. That's so cool. I um, really did not enjoy my stats class in college. And I'm so glad you did because you are much better to get to the bottom of that and think about how many resources we would not, um, that we would waste and not use well if we didn't have an answer to the story and the answer to the questions that you're asking. So I find that so fascinating. And also as a mom, my heart beats faster in that chapter because it's very easy for me to get help for my kids. We yes. pay out of the nose for health insurance and we have wonderful health insurance, but that is not, that's not hard for us. If my child needs a surgery, it's mm -hmm. going to happen. And even the aftercare, kind of talking about what you were um, discussing earlier about preeclampsia for you, the aftercare is exceptional. I get people yeah. calling me and letting me know, uh, the, you know, the doctor checking in and the nurse is saying, is everything okay? I mean, that is a very different situation than most of the world. Yes. Yeah. And I, it, when we center correctly, we see the world for as it is. There's a chapter in the book about we've gotten the minority wrong and the majority wrong. Um, that's not what it's called, but that's what it's about. Yes. And there's it, you know, it's easy to think that everybody in the world has a car or has health access or looks like us. When in reality, we're kind of the like the 2% of the world and right. the rest doesn't. So there's it's also an, an equity issue of opening up to our, you know, what we have is privilege, but then what others don't. Right. And also. And also. As an author, I know, might say. Yes. Emily, before I let you go, I'm going to ask you a question that I ask all of our guests. Lovely. And um, it is thus. There are two parts. It, they are book nerd questions. Yes. I am a happily self-professed book nerd, and I think you might be as well. Oh, yes. <laughs> And I would love to ask two questions. First, is there a book that you return to over and over? Could be the way back list of someone. The author doesn't even need to be currently with us. May they rest in peace. But a book that you have returned to over and over that you find yourself returning to and recommending. It can yeah. be in any sphere. And then if there's a book on your horizon that you cannot wait to tackle. Ooh. Yes, I am a book nerd. So this is a great question. Okay. <laughs> In the back of the book, I put a list of the top 10 books I that, that I had to say top 10-ish because I yeah. just, <laughs> I couldn't do it. <laughs> so that's, that's a long form of the top 10-ish books that I would yes, recommend. I love it. My main uh, person who has taught me about being a neighbor is Dr. Edna Dawn Ismail in Somaliland. And she has a memoir 
Uh, so that is the number one. I have it on uh, my door here at work so the students can see it when they walk by. But it is just this incredible story of someone living life with the both and and on the mm-hmm. margins. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is who, and now we're friends and I just pinched You've met her. Yes, I saw the photo. There's a photo yes, in the book. There is a photo. You look really excited. Well, that is not a lie because I was excited. I love it. I have zero chill when I meet my heroes. I Even if I psych myself out, now you're going to be calm and you're going to be your normal calm, calm. Nope. Lose no. it. I lose it. I usually cry. I'm an active crier. Oh, we are such yeah. good friends. That is got me in when, a pot of trouble. When I was last at the UN, you really try to play it cool. Oh, but I then when people would make a statement and come back to their seat, I was thumbs up in them and like, well done. I could not. <laughs> Jazz ends. Well done. Did they know what to do with you for that? I fi- Some of them I, okay. would thumbs up back and yeah. the others would look, what are you doing? <laughs> Is that a rude <laughs> gesture? She, she's smiling. Just, just saying good job. <laughs> this is a problem when I travel too. I have to be in Rome. I need to be as the Romans. And I'm never, I'm always the I sure. one. Hi guys. Hey, oh, how's it going? Good to see you. Me it's too. a problem. Part of being Nehemiah and doing our good work is I'm not embarrassed of that anymore. Okay. Well, as I'm much. just going to embrace them. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Well, we embarrass our children, but that's just oh. a hazard. So yeah, it's true. And a book on the horizon coming one that is to be released is that sure whatever or just something or just you've had I on your to... bed stand that you think oh I wish I had more time oh gosh I have a billion on I know that's an issue here too mm-hmm. oh um Arthur Cole Riley yes he has a new black book liturgy coming. yes yes January 2024 okay you better believe I already got that you one pre-ordered and that baby oh okay. yes it was her work was just lovely. Yeah. It, you know what it did for me is it made me stop and listen a lot mm. more. So mm. I'm excited about hers. That's great. Dr. Emily Smith, who <laughs> has her PhD, let us always say it. Thank <laughs> you so much for coming on for real. I just so enjoyed talking with you and so enjoyed the way your book opened new doors. And I think that's going to happen for so many readers. I hope so. Thanks for having me. This was lovely. It's always fun when you do these and you kind of gain a friend. Oh, well, I'm into it. Let's go do tacos. Yeah. (laughs) Perfect. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Ooh, her book challenged me deeply, friends. I think that the last few years have had this weird effect on making the world feel at once way too big and way too small for me. Emily reminded me that to love the world well, it will cost me. It will cost us. And the first step of that cost is to approach each other with humility and curiosity and an eagerness to say, tell me more. Thank you for joining in today. I so appreciate your willingness to wade into all kinds of waters with me. And I'm honored to be learning and growing and wondering and listening right along with you. I would love for you to share this conversation with people in your corner of the world. And I'd love for you to come back really soon. The door will be wide open and there will be lots of room just for you, for real.